I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That is the music of my first guest today, Cloud Castle Lake. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Cloud Castle Lake. They are a very young band from Ireland. Uh, I say very young because I'm very old, so anybody under uh, 30 seems like a baby to me. Uh, They are all in their 20s, and they've been around for a couple of years. Now, uh, I had a chat with uh, the singer Daniel McCauley, which we'll get to in a second. But Daniel McCauley is an interesting guy. His falsetto is evocative, it's haunting, it's wrenching, it's beautiful, uh, and it's incredibly powerful. But here's the thing. He didn't even know he could do it. He didn't even know he could sing. He found out by accident, which in my mind is like finding out that you have a superpower. Uh, You know, like finding out you can lift up a car and throw it to the moon or that you can uh, breathe fire or stop time. You get the idea. It literally is like finding out you have a superpower that you never knew you had, but you've had it your whole life. Well, Daniel McCauley's voice is like that. It reminds me of Jeff Buckley. It reminds me of Tom York. And it reminds me of Mark Hollis of Talk Talk. Not bad company to be in. It's powerful. It's mysterious. And it's incredibly beguiling. Cloud Castle Lake took their name from the title of a Vladimir Nabokov short story. And I won't bore you with uh, how much I love that short story and what it's about, so I'll just sort of uh, summarize it in one sentence. The story is about one man's quest for beauty and the realization that when you find it, you can't live there. You can't live in beauty. It's uh, a temporary thing, like happiness, like sadness, uh, like any emotion. Beauty is impermanent. I know it's depressing, but it's true. Beauty is impermanent. And, uh, you know, I know Kim Kardashian doesn't believe that. I know that Hollywood doesn't want you to believe that, but it's true. Now, if I had to sum up what Cloud Castle Lake's music is about, I would say it is the ongoing quest for beauty. And it explores the, the mystery and the impermanence and the transitory nature of all things in the world that are beautiful but finite. And so in that finite nature of beauty is an inherent darkness. Okay? 
I know, I know. It's a lot to take in, but it's all true, so don't run from it, okay? All right, now here's the thing. Cloudcast and Lake are a complicated band. These are not just, you know, three-minute jangly pop songs that uh, you can put on while you're washing the car. This is a band that demands that you listen to them. This is a studied listen. Uh, it's background music at first, and then it kind of, uh, you know, after about the seventh or eighth spin, it kind of uh, dislodges your soul and uh, and makes your uh, makes your heart feel weird, and uh, it makes you feel uh, like the universe is far more powerful and vast than you ever thought. This is the kind of music that will terrify you, and then uh, it'll seduce you with its beauty, and then it'll terrify you again. You'll love it. You'll be scared of it. Then you'll love it again, and you'll understand the world a little more than you did the last time you listened to it. And that's what I love about this band. Their music keeps pulling you back. You keep trying to figure it out, but you can't. But then you sort of can, and then you realize that you, you really can't. Um, they remind me a lot of Talk Talk in that way, where I've listened to Talk Talk's albums you know, 8 million times, and I'm no closer to understanding their work than you know, when I first started listening to them. That's a band that you keep with you for your whole life. Now, I got to be honest with you guys because the lies have to stop. I, I, I'm not sure what to make of this interview. This was uh, an unusual one. Um, Daniel McCauley was in the studio in Ireland when we talked, and uh, he's a real sweet guy, very, uh, very nice guy. Uh, didn't say much. After a while, I felt like I was interrogating him. I felt like I was in Mossad, and I was trying to figure out where, uh, where the next thing was going to happen. Um, I, I started to feel bad, uh, but he – you know, I don't know if it's because he's young or if it's because he um, wants the music to speak for itself. But I kept trying to dislodge uh, a little bit of, uh, of an explanation of the magic about Cloud Castle Lake from him, and, uh, and he wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, reveal – any secrets, but uh, you know I respect that. But I was looking for a thread to pull, and uh, I'm not really sure I found it. I think that uh, you know I don't know if that was part of his thing. If he's thinking like I don't I don't want to give too much of this stuff away, so I'll just uh, answer very uh, very politely and very uh, very vaguely at the same time. Uh, he was sort of specifically vague, um, but I like this band so much that I kind of feel that it, it kind of adds to the mystery. And I realized that as I was talking to him, I was trying to solve that mystery. And by the end of it, it just got more mysterious. So you tell me. Uh, have a listen. See what you think. He's a lovely guy. I couldn't make him spill the secrets, but uh, I think I got a little bit out of him. All right. See what you think. This is my conversation with Daniel McCauley of Cloud Castle Lake. Enjoy it here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. We take from a lot of different places, I, I think uh... – both Rory and Brendan, uh, guitarist Brendan, are very into Talk Talk, so that probably creeps through a little bit. Um, but for the last record, one of the big influences was um, uh, spiritual jazz stuff, so like Pharaoh Sanders and Alice Coltrane. Uh, and so we kind of took some of those elements um, when writing some of the songs. But they come from a lot of different places, which ends up, making them quite complex, probably. What elements of, say, like Alice Coltrane, what are the elements that you are drawn to in her music, for example? Uh, well, our drummer, uh, our Brendan, uh, comes from a jazz background, and so his 
his sense of rhythm and what he's brought to the band is kind of uh, made us draw from those trance um, kind of elements from Alice Coltrane. And is he the guy, he was the a late addition to the band, is that right? Uh, yeah, he joined, uh, I think, two years ago. One and a half, two years ago. Where did you find him? Um, it was through um, a friend of ours who uh, we've found other musicians through. He he um, he was uh, working with an orchestra in Trinity, so any time that we needed brass or strings or something, then we'd ask him because he knew everybody. And he knew of Brendan, who was just finishing uh, college at the time, so he was quite younger than us, um, and we were lucky to snap him up. One of the things that, that really intrigued me about you is that you were not singing your whole life. Is that correct? Uh, no, I, I only started when I was about 16 or 17 with the band. So prior to that, you had not, you had not really... Were there aspirations to sing or it was something you'd thought about or something you knew you could do? Or was it sort of a hidden, a hidden talent? Um, I didn't really know I could. It was I, Rory kind of overheard me singing along to something and asked me to uh, rehearse with them, and it ended up going well. And I ended up improving over time, and that's pretty much how it started. So you were as surprised as as everybody else. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I didn't really expect it to my voice to sound the way it does now when I was starting off, but yeah, it's the way it happened. It's interesting. It's not as though, uh, you know, Oh, it turns out that I can, I can sort of sing pretty well. I mean, you have a really astounding voice. And so it's, yeah. it really intrigues me that something like that could be <laughs> dormant, uh, for the first 16 years of your life. I mean, it really is a powerful instrument. And to think that that was something that you were kind of sitting on uh, is—it just kind of blows my mind. Um, there, there was no anyone in your family a singer. I mean, how did that? Do you think there's any kind of way you could trace uh, any kind of vocal musicality in your in your lineage? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I can't think of anyone in in my immediate family who would be too musically inclined. Um, it, yeah, it kind of kind of came out of nowhere. So once you realize that you can do something like that, and you start, it's almost like realizing you have a superpower. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's like that that moment where uh, you know the new superhero kind of realizes their their strength and they start kind of flexing that muscle. So as you started to develop your voice, and you started to realize like, oh, I actually have a pretty a pretty powerful range here. What was it like to sort of develop that? And what was it like to, to realize um, what you could actually do with that voice? Um, I, I guess it took a long time for it to, um, to flesh it out. I mean, I'm 27 now, so, and I'm, I still feel like there's quite a, a lot of room for improvement. Um, so it, it was always, I don't know, I've, I've, I've always felt I could have been 
better throughout my development. I, I wouldn't say I felt like a superpower. How do you how do you develop something like that? How do you um, how do you get better? Like what do what do you do to to test the range of what you can do? I I think of you as like a you know somewhere between you know Tom York or Mark Hollis, and those are those are big names, and I think you can you can rest comfortably um, alongside those guys, and they're they're giants. So what do you do to actually improve? I just I mean for anyone out there listening, it's kind of an interesting idea to think like you discover a talent that you have and it doesn't just sit there. You have to keep going. So what exactly do you do to test it? Um, well, recently I have started seeing um, a vocal coach, which has been uh, really good um, because in the past I-, I picked up a lot of probably bad techniques, just kind of pushing, pushing and stretching it over time um, in probably negative ways uh, and getting a bit neurotic about it. So to develop it now, I, the, the vocal coach and uh, classic kind of sustainable techniques has been uh, what I've really been focusing on. Neurotic and in what way is neurotic? Well, um, when you have kind of big notes coming up and you start to uh, – just fresh and you start singing the wrong way because you're nervous and just kind of things that uh, I'll pick up and then lose bad habits pretty much. And so what has the, uh, the kind of the vocal training, what is it really, what was the biggest revelation for you so far? Um, just how easy it should feel and um, not putting so much, um, stress on my on myself, and just letting um, letting the technique, uh, being able to rely on the technique without having to to worry or push my body too much. Because there are some there are some vocalists who started off really strong. I think like you know someone like Axl Rose, you know, was a great you know hard rock singer. But if you listen to him now, his voice is virtually gone um he's he's lost a lot of the range and he doesn't have the power he used to have it sounds like he's straining um you know whereas some people can actually age really well in that in that way if they're if they're trained and they're practicing and um so i wonder if you had continued on the way you were continuing if if it would be something that would be i don't want to say harmful but uh maybe limiting in the end yeah, I think that was one of the reasons why I started as well, because I was starting to worry about that. Like you read about people having to get surgery on their vocal nodes and things like that, uh, which, you know, would be horrible. Um, yeah. And definitely the way I was singing was it, that could have that was definitely a possibility. Um, so uh, using like kind of operatic techniques um, is definitely the most sustainable way to maintain your voice. And is that, has cha- it's really changed in terms of now how you approach it. It's, it's changed everything. Um, yeah, it, I feel like it's a lot more open sounding um, and more comfortable sounding. I would imagine also in a live setting, uh, it, it would make you a much more dominant force. 
Yeah, well, it means I can, I have a lot more stamina, uh, which is very important. I know that you got your name from the Nabokov short story. Was that something that, did that, did that story resonate with you and you thought, let's choose that? Or how, how did that come about? Uh, I think we'd, we'd actually chosen, I'd seen the name um, on a book that I bought when we were trying to figure out what we should call ourselves. And I think we actually named ourselves after it first before actually reading the short story. And then once we read the short story, we realized the funny kind of parallels that could be drawn from naming ourselves after it. What are the parts of that story that you like? Uh, well, it's it's been a while since I've read it, actually, to be honest. But um, the parts I liked, I can't even remember, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I've just given you a quiz, I, and I, uh, <laughs> in school, um, because it's you know it's a great it's a great metaphorical um, uh, lesson in there. I mean, it's also you know Nabokov is also really funny and also really dark, um, but the but the name itself always reminded me when I read it in school. I thought this sounds like an Echo and the Bunnymen album title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but I love, I do love the piece. Tell me a little bit, did you grow up in Dublin? Uh, well, actually for my first, uh, until I was eight, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. And then we moved to Ireland, uh, in 1998 and I've been here since. So you were born in Washington. So you so are your, how does that work? Are your parents, are they American or is one of them Irish? Uh, they're both Irish. They were just, um, living there at the time. Um, and had me while they were over there. So you actually are, are you a dual citizen? Yeah, luckily. <laughs> the so, others are, they're trying to sort out visas for the US shows, and I don't have to do anything, which has been really nice. So you can you can sit back and sort of watch your bandmates struggle trying to get that paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> Lyrically, what are the things that you're drawn to and what are the themes that you find yourself grappling with in your in your work? Um, I, I think on the most recent album, uh, Doubt ended up creeping in quite a lot throughout. Um, that was quite a big one. Um, on, t- on Twins... Um, I was thinking a lot about um, social media and tribal aspects of people online. Um, they're probably the, the two that spring to mind. So doubt in, in what specific way? Uh, I, I guess self-doubt. Just kind of second-guessing yourself or not being sure of what you should do or are doing. And is that something that you have grappled with your, you know, your entire life? Is that is that something that you think about a lot? Um, I, I wouldn't say my entire life, no. But it was certainly something that I was feeling at the time when we were when we were writing the album. Lyrics and and music has always been a way to process or um, kind of see things in a new light. So. Um, that was always how I treated lyrics, and they're pre- pretty. To be honest, they're pretty. They're pretty opaque, and I'm not always 
the easiest to understand anyway when I'm singing. So I've never been too worried about how other people would perceive it or losing my intimacy or uh, being overly intimate in that way with my uh, with my lyrics. It feels kind of detached once once you're finished writing it. Cloud Castle Lake, that felt more to me like Cloud Castle Vague. <laughs> that was uh, that was tough. That was a tough interview. I lost nine pounds. I was sweating while that conversation was happening. I was the hardest working man in show business. Um, that look, not a lot of mystery revealed. Not a lot of uh, not a lot of uh, behind the scenes glimpses with that guy. Not a lot of answers. It's like I handed him a Rubik's Cube, and I was like, can you solve this for me? And then he took it and lit it on fire and handed it back to me, and he was like, I don't know. Can you solve this for me? That's what that's what that interview felt like. So here's my advice when listening to Cloud Castle Lake. Figure it out for yourself. Figure out uh, what the questions are and uh, then answer them, right? Pose them, answer them, and, uh, and reach conclusions that, that you reach. And I think every answer is the right answer. That's, that's, uh, that's how I'm going to sum that whole thing up. Uh, okay, this is Stereo Ember's The Podcast. Check this out. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. That is the soulful contralto voice of my next guest, Alison Moyer. Let me tell you a little bit about Alison Moyer. She was born in Essex to a French father and an English mother. At 16, she became a piano tuner, and then she went, enough with the piano tuning, I'm going to get into punk rock. And she started playing in bands like the Vandals and the Vickers. That's right, piano tuner to punk rocker, that old chestnut. In 1982, at the age of 21... Alison Moyet teamed up with Vince Clark, who had been in Depeche Mode and would soon be in Erasure, and the two formed a band called Yazoo. It was later shortened to Yaz, and they recorded two albums of uh, techno synth soul. If you get a chance to check those records out, they're both fantastic. Upstairs at Eric's is the first one, You and Me Both is the second, and they're both indispensable. You should have them they are fantastic. Um, her alliance with Vince Clark did not last very long. Uh, a little under two years. Not bad. Two albums in two years. Um, and that was it. They broke up. Vince Clark formed Erasure. Alison Moyet went on to be a formidable solo artist. How formidable? Well, let me tell you. She played at Live Aid. She was nominated for a Grammy. She has had five top ten hits in the U.K., 
She's put out nine solo albums. She was awarded a Basca Gold Badge Award for her contribution to music. And she's quietly sold close to 30 million albums. So, Alison Moyet, not too shabby. And my chat with her, not too shabby either. I really liked her. She's lovely. She's sweet. She's smart. She's charming. And she's funny. And I hope you enjoy my conversation right here with Alison Moyet on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Allison, I've always loved your work, and your voice is so soulfully exquisite. Uh, every time I hear you, it, it's just astonishing to me how beautiful of a singer you are. Oh, I love you to say thank you. Okay, I had to get that out of the way. I won't fawn over you anymore, I promise. Now, your latest album came out a few months ago, and it's fantastic. But I remember reading back in 2013 when you put the minutes out that there were a lot of struggles around that album. What was the biggest challenge of getting that record made? Well, uh, the, the biggest challenge was to con- convince any, any record label that there was a purpose for me uh, writing my own material. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, that was the, the, the biggest thing, you know. I, 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 you know, as well as being a singer, I'm obviously, you know, a creative artist as well, and, and there is a reticence to, you know, for, for record companies to allow middle-aged, certainly middle-aged solo female singers, that kind of... Uh, wrote. Consequently, I, I couldn't get a deal uh, except for covers albums. So, it, you know, Guy and I, who had already met one another, started working together and really believed in what we were doing, decided then that we would make this album on our own. And then when it was a fait accompli, then to try and find somebody who, who would get it and who was prepared to, to get behind it. And and, and that was, um, you know, Cooking Violent in England, the metropolis of taking it on in, um, in the States. So it, it, it's, it's just a completely delightful... With delightful vindication, and I don't mean to say that in any, with any kind of bitterness, because I don't feel bitter, because I, you know, I completely empathise with an industry that's imploding and how difficult it is to get new music out there. It's just, I, I believed in this, and I, I really needed to, to get it born, you know. You know, it doesn't make sense in my brain to hear that someone like you would have trouble finding, you know, a record company that would want to take a chance on you, which sounds like such a dumb thing to say. Like, we'll take a chance on Alison Moyet. Um, you know, you're an established, proven um, artist, so that that is bizarre to me. Um, but it also smacks of a certain degree of ageism, um, where I think the industry is always looking for you know the next young sensation, which is fine because it's always been that way. But there has to be room for you know artists who've been around um, and who've proven themselves. Uh, the whole thing is is a shame. It's a shame because it's the one art form where age isn't kind of valued. And, and again, I, I, I'm saying this to you just as a kind of as a matter of fact. There is no bleating that goes with this because at the same level that I, you know, struggle like most people do at my age now with it. You know, I benefited from it when I was young, so I had no truck with that. It, it's just that, you know, that that age brings many things to the table that, that you know you know that's why artist development is is appreciated and and i do get it because you know there are there, there are fewer and fewer avenues in which you uh, a record company can expose music you know it's, it's become very expensive for them and they get very little return and so it is so much easier now to put out a, a record from somebody from the x factor that's already had all that you know um, publicity and exposure, and and rather than do artist development, let's just chuck them out because the year after you get a whole new breed of them coming through, you know. So I mean, the the landscape has changed um, massively in the music industry, unless uh, unless you are part of that, 
yeah, the young, um, the, the young independent working actor, really. At this point in your career, do you have, you know, more impatience and more anger towards record companies than you ever have? I have less um, impatience. I'm I'm less angry with record labels, and and I empathise with. Um, with people's music listening, because, you know, there's so much stuff to talk through. I mean, uh, you know, the same happens to me. I, I know for a fact that I miss a lot of brilliant stuff because there's such a, a deluge of it that I, I can't, I can't, I almost can't put my foot in there because it's too, the task is too immense. So, no, I, I don't feel any resentment uh, at all uh, about those things. What I would say is that um, I do what I have chosen to do over the last you know, good 15, 20 years of my career, which is to make music for myself. And, um, you know, sometimes I've realised that really well. Sometimes I've done it less well. But at all times, I have achieved what I wanted to do, which was discovery, you know, self-discovery, find out what I can do, find out, you know, what I'm capable of. And, and, and that's what motivates me to go on. It's never been about re reproducing something to ensure that I have a hit. You know, Other and The Minutes feel thematically very connected to me. They feel very consistent, uh, and they feel almost like companion albums. Do you find that at this point in your career that you are attracted to the same themes? And if so, how do those themes or how does your um, approach to songwriting differ now from your earlier work? I, I have long written in the old kind of uh, um, ethos that, that was sort of given to me via Janis Joplin, which was, you know, love affairs tended to be torturous, you know, um, uh, uh, and my Elvis Costello early period, which tended to be aggr aggressive. So I kind of knew, you know, I, I, I had a language. I had a language that I used. That, I mean, it wasn't pretension because, uh, you know, my, my life in many ways was quite torturous. It's just that I, I kept in this circle of just this, I just kept myself in that circle, you know, you feel pain, you write about pain, you then explain your pain, you know, and it's like, geez, you never get out of it. <laughs> and I started with uh, this album, almost starting with the same kind of themes and thought, actually, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm a middle-aged woman, you know, romance, what does it truly mean to me? I'm a long time married, you know, I, I have, you know, it, it's, it's, an it's an irrelevant to me, it doesn't touch me, what, what is relevant to me is, is self, is, you know, is, it's, it's self-reflection, you know. I, I've always been someone that's, that, that overthinks too much, anyway. But but I, I started um, writing, thinking about this album in terms of much more about observation. For example, "Rung by the Tide." That that was um, begun by the fact that a, a friend of mine had taken a picture of a bell that just had a card on the bell. I am rung by the tide, and from that, then I started thinking about monasteries and bells in monasteries, and I started doing research and looking into the um, the coastline of the Sussex coastline that fell away into the sea in the Middle Ages, and all the myths that surrounded bells. And then I thought, what it would be to be a bell. Then I became a bell personified, and then I thought, how would that bell feel when it's finally liberated from these torturous, you know, these century-long you know, um, rituals and, and how liberated and free and glad it was never to have to hear another person bleating about their sorrows, you know. So it, it was kind of from that, All Signs of Life it, it, um, uh, is a song that I wrote about my husband who's really into physical endeavour, something that as a as a, a, a lazy twat that I am, I don't understand. So it's trying to put yourself in the headspace of someone who pushes their body through pain, you know, and, and you know, there's these, all these things, uh, Filigree, for example, that's a song that I wrote um, after having a weekend 
in Amsterdam and, and going to a cinema in the afternoon and catching uh, The Tree of Life and not knowing what the film was about and, and going in there and being kind of perplexed by the pace of it and noticing how many people were leaving the cinema when they realised they weren't just going to get Brad Pitt um, abs, you know, and how you kind of sit with a film and, and you wait with it and then right at the very last minute there's something that... that is so redemptive, you know, right, the, the last scene is so redemptive that it makes your chest implode. And it, and it actually became the catalyst for me to understand the title of the album, The Minutes, what, what that meant to me and what it was, what that film made me think as I watched these people leaving and there were just a few of us that stayed. And at the end, when I looked at the people like me who were crying, you know, was how so often we jump too soon, be it suicide, be it from a marriage, be it from a project, be it from something that, it, that just seems to be eluding us, that, that had we just stuck with it, had we just held out, that fantastic moment would have happened. And this again then led me on to this whole idea that how long I spent in my life feeling cheated, uh, like other people do, when there wasn't seamless joy or seamless love or, you know, seamless uh, reward. Um, and when you understand, actually, the rewards in life do only come in minutes. They really do happen in minutes. And these minutes are strung out in pedestrian years. And it's not just you that got it wrong. We're all struggling with that. And when you realize that and actually can embrace those times, that it's, a, it's a, a wonderful thing to let go of, you know.
I've been on a kick lately where I've been listening to the minutes just nonstop. Uh, I know it came out a few years ago, but I, I'm a bit obsessed with this record. And I, I'm thinking about your answer that you just gave. I'm thinking about what you just said. And, and based on that response, the minutes is not an album you could have made at 21. Isn't that right? No, it's not a record I could have made. Exactly that, which is exactly why I didn't want to listen to current music. You know, I knew that I wanted to make an album with um, the Electronica palette. I knew that I wanted there to be some um, uh, experimentation in it, which is why I think of it in terms of a, a prog pop album. That's that's kind of how it is to me because so much of my writing on it is born of improvisation. Um, but I wanted it to have um, an intelligent language. I, you know, my generation. You know, my generation. We grew up with far more um, um, edgy music forms than my children's generation have, you know, which I, uh, music has become so market-led and, and, and pop has become asinine again in so many ways. It's so much facsimile and, and a language that, that just, you know, that, you know, sits well phonetically but actually, and actually doesn't engage you. You know, I, 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 wanted, to, I wanted to write um, mini scripts almost. Well, that explains perfectly what I've always maintained, and that is that the minutes has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, it's it's one of the few albums that actually plays like one big cohesive piece. Well, well exactly this, and this is the other the other reason why I had a problem with recording because so much of the ethos of recording at the moment, especially for solo female singers, is that they just pull in these. I mean, obviously, if you, if you can. Uh, if you can command that, you know, that market attention. And obviously, as a middle-aged woman who people think of as having had her heyday in the 80s, that, that doesn't include me. But for the young crop, the young breed, their albums are made by these 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 in-out streams of hit songwriters who don't want to commit to a whole album, 21 acts. They just want to write the songs. They're going to get them the PRS. Do you know what I mean? And it's like you end up with these strange collections 
these strange collections that got 10 or 12 writers on every song, which you want how the fuck they can split that <laughs> workload up, you know. But that's the way it's done, and, and, and so basically you're, you're making um, a, a collection for iTunes is, is what you're doing. I wanted to make a, a body of work. I wanted to make an album that, that held together cohesively to be listened to as an album uh, for people who, like me, we may be uh, middle-aged, but we, are, we don't lack intelligence in our musical palette. And by that token, aren't we middle-aged folks more demanding of our art? Exactly that. Exactly that. You know, we, we grew up um, expecting greater diversity, expecting greater invention, expecting um, greater commitment to, uh, to to what you know to, to how you are expressing yourself. You know, I don't want to express myself. Um, in, in light of what is trendy and what is happening and what the youth think today. I don't give a shit about the youth of today. Do you know what I mean? It's not my place to give a shit about the youth today, and I'm not upset if the youth of today don't give a shit about me. That's completely fine. Again, I'm not being disingenuous. If no. somebody wants to tune into it, that's fantastic. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to pretend I'm anything other than middle age. I think that there's this... You know, I, I hate to see in the media about how women... Are, are becoming, you know, well, not are becoming, have become, so, are so devalued when they move beyond being shagworthy. Do you know what I mean? When they're beyond being deemed shagworthy. We have these brilliant women in England, these brilliant academic, fantastic intelligent women who are spending more of their time being asked why they aren't dyeing their hair before they go on television. I think, you know what, fuck off. Fuck off, I'm not going to come into this arena and pretend uh, by having Botox or God knows whatever that I am not fully in my 50s. I'm in my 50s. You know, middle-aged women have got something to offer creatively. And and I'm not even saying that. I haven't even suffered from it personally. So I'm not... I'm, this, again, this is not a bitter thing. It's just... I, I just... I, I just need to... I just need to count myself uh, among my peers. And, and um, among my peers, I'm... I'm a, I'm a middle-aged creative woman, and there are lots of us. One of the coolest things I've found about getting older is that I find it much easier now than ever before in my life to to say no. Um, it's just it's an easier word for me to get out. I'm assuming it's easier for you now too. Why is that? Why is it so easy for us now to say no? Well, because you, because it gets to the point where you know so so often, especially if you're someone like me that comes from. Um, a working class background. I left at 16 with the equivalent of not getting my um, college, my junior college degree. I didn't graduate. Put that way. I didn't graduate. I left at 16. I'm not qualified to work behind um, a, a till in a shop. Do you know what I mean? And it's like when when you come from that background, then you are absolutely to be led, uh, led to believe that 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 people will know better than you. When you suddenly realise, no, this is just a, you know, this is just a matter of presentation, and you know um, that 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 you are in no means uh, your your opinion, your understanding, your knowledge of your own field is no means uh, inferior to somebody else. And and in fact, when you realise how many times you've not listened to your own voice and you've gone with someone else to be comply, you know, to be compliant, to be helpful, to be, you know, to to, to be to see, be seen as willing, and you realise that time and time again they've made the wrong call, you think, fuck it, I'm not doing it, you know, I'm not doing it. It's, it's like, you know, I give you your rope, you hung yourself with it, forget it now. When you recorded the minutes, you hadn't put a record out for almost seven years. So when it came out, and it was really well-reviewed, and it shot right up the charts, were you surprised by the reaction that you got? 
no, um, yes and no. I, I'm not someone that has expect. I, I don't have expectations. So when something comes out, you know, I always come at it from a, a you know a standpoint. Look. Of I've, I've done what I could do in this with this album. I love this album, so it doesn't matter if someone doesn't like it because I'm very firm in the fact that I love it. Um, I believe that people would, uh, that lots of people will like your work if they get exposed to it. I would not have been surprised if no one got exposed to it because of the nature of the things that I've spoken about. Uh, neither am I surprised when people are exposed to it that they like it. Um, yes, I am. Uh, I I wasn't expecting to go in top five in England, um, and so that's a lovely, joyful thing. But I wouldn't have thought less of my album had I not. Now, other ends with the song "Alive," and the minutes ends with a song called "Rung by the Tide." Was both amazing album closers. In the case of the minutes, "Rung by the Tide" almost feels like a standalone epic. It seems like the most natural way to have ended that record. Did you always know that was the album closer? And if so, why? I, I think I think the very fact that it is, you know, that it is the kind of slight beast that stands alone, that the very line in it, the very last line in that song is me saying an ending to begin is, you know, is is very relevant. You know, uh, you know, endings don't happen, you know, don't happen in the second endings. Endings, you know, happen before we notice them. And... Whichever way you look at it, and I'm, I don't say it, um, I don't say it with any sense of anything. I've, the person that I am is, I, I just say it as I see things, and I don't, I, I don't, I'm not carrying emotional baggage with it. There's no way that you know when your career is a sine wave and you can hit attention at a certain point in time. I don't imagine that the, the, the stars will come together in a place where I can make a new body of work and receive the same willingness to to give it a listen as I have at this point in time. That's just about you know, that's just about times and you know everyone getting allocated their time in the in the, in the light. That doesn't mean to say I won't make a, another great record. It doesn't mean to say that I won't make another record that's successful. But I think it's very likely that in terms of making uh, a creative record that does get highlighted like that, I'm 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 very at peace with the fact that this could be the last one. Well, you know, it's one of my favorite album closers of all time because I feel like when you're talking about aging and you're talking about what it means to get older and you're trying to put it in metaphorical or poetic terms, for my money, there's no better way to describe what it means to be getting older, to describe the the process of aging. Um, as as saying that that we've been wrung by the tide. It's the most perfect encapsulation of being battered by the years. Absolutely, a- absolutely that. We are wrung, wrung by the tide, and, and the whole point about this bell is that, you know, is as well about getting to that point of where you don't want to sing when someone tells you you can sing, and, and you don't want to be silenced by somebody else's fingers. Your voice is an instrument of tremendous strength and power and it always has been but i'm wondering as you've gotten older if it's changed and if it has changed how have you accommodated or adjusted or noticed that change um so has that happened has it changed it it definitely changed i mean obviously it changes with age anyway so um with age you know the, the pitch will have dropped a semitone or a tone maybe you know but that's also got a lot to do with the fact that you know, you know, you don't choose to make certain sounds because they're not appropriate for your life. They're not appropriate for your way of thinking. You know, when you're young, there's very much a kind of a visceral howl that you can make 
that is that that comes from this kind of just animalistic feeling that you don't comprehend when you get older you can't help but to comprehend it and so and so it is not it's not honest for me to use that sound you know and and when i sing i engage with what i'm singing i i i stop singing songs that i can't uh, engage with anymore that i that i can't relate to but so that when i'm singing them on stage i have to be feeling them i have to feel them i I, I refuse to tread water. If I feel, you know, if I, if I feel I'm just treading water as I'm singing something, I'll just stop it. I will not continue to, to sing it live. So, so the voice changes, the way that you want to uh, utilise it changes. And um, the, the thing, maybe one of the things that I found most difficult in my career, um, in the length of it, is that when you become known for having a... a a voice that can be utilised very traditionally and, and, and can be admired when it's, it's utilised very traditionally. It's very difficult to persuade people to understand that you are more than a voice. On this album, uh, I, I'm very much the songwriter. You know, a, a guy and I have written a, a, this material together, and it's not one of those kind of fake, do you mean I've got my name on it because right. I'm, I'm copying off the publishing. This is my work. This is my work. This is my voice, you know. And within that, uh, when you want fidelity to go towards the song, it's not always about making your voice um, the the truncheon to hit everyone over the head with. You must see me because there are some songs where the the lyrics are so much more important to me than the, the fact that the voice has to be heard as a as a showing off instrument. You know, I don't want to showboat all the time. I know that I can make those things. You know what I mean. It's kind of like a, a woman who's got a wonderful body. A woman who's got a wonderful body doesn't need to get her tits and her legs out at the same time. And I kind of <laughs> feel that a little bit with singing. That yes, I, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying this with vanity. I, I promise you, you know, I will tell you quite happily what I'm rubbish at. But I, I know that I've got the kind of voice that people see as a as a traditionally good voice. You know, that that I, I don't want to be hampered by that when it comes to making art. I don't want to be forced into only using it in a respectful manner. Well, I love everything you've ever done, but your last two albums are big, bold, rich, soulful records, and I can't stop listening to them. Well, thank you, and that you know, and that is that is absolutely what I wanted to do. But I know it sits in stark relief so often at the moment with with a lot of vocal stylings. You know, it's quite funny seeing young people's reaction to my style of singing. They're very bemused by the maleness of my voice for a start. Um, and also the fact that I might approach certain things with an aggression that you don't really hear in women singing uh, in the mainstream at the moment unless it's a, a kind of cod sexual aggression. Do you know what I mean? This, this is my aggression on, uh, you know, it's... There's a sexuality to the singing, but it's it's not uh, um, it's it's a personal sexuality as, as opposed to a titillatory sexuality or a, a, a sexuality that that tries to put itself in a an an erotic place. You know, in other words, that's trying to mirror somebody else's desires. You see young women who are putting themselves across overtly sexually, and it looks like a strong statement. Whereas in truth, and even they don't realise what they've done is completely complied with the image of what the, the, the male uh, um, the male kind of media music industry is telling them is female sexuality. And, 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 and you know, please don't take from that that there's any part of me that uh, um, has, a, has issues with men, because this is not men... This is not men across the board. So the men in my life, I love men. I, 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 I've been married to, to men, and I've 
been married to my last one for, for over 20 years. You know, it's like men are not like that wholesale. But there, there is a voice. There is a voice in in the music industry that that describes the sexuality for women, and and those women from a young age think that they're taking that they're empowered, but they're not empowered. They're just they're just making themselves into blow up dolls.
Well, there you go. God, I love her. Allison Moyer, big thanks to her for chatting with us here on the program. Big thanks to Cloud Castle Lake as well. And of course, a mighty round of thanks to you. Thank you for always coming back and listening to the program. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. It's free and it always will be. Why? Well, because I have no kids to send to college. That's why. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening to the program. I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.